Well, now we're going to pray, and this morning uh, our prayers will be informed by the first part of our reading. We're going to pick it up at Luke 14, verse 25, and I'll read to the end of that chapter, and then as our main reading, we'll read Luke 15 later on. So let me read this, and then I'll pray. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desire to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just to say before we read this um, passage, these are very well-known parables, um, but the key to understanding it all is found in the first three verses. So pay careful attention to them. And if you miss it, don't worry, all will be explained. It says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he was received him back, he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. You've never gave me a young goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, we're going to have a look at that in a moment. Before we do, just a few things to mention. The first is question time. That comes immediately after the sermon. So there'll be an opportunity for you to ask any questions or make any comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. The second thing to mention is the, order of, uh, the sermon outline, which is in your order of service. Um, that's obviously something that you can use if it's helpful. And then finally, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these accounts that Jesus gives. And we pray, Lord, as we reflect on these, that our emotions would reflect the emotions of heaven. We pray, Lord, that we would truly be those who think God's thoughts after him and would share the emotions of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Well, this morning we arrive at three parables that must be up there along with some of the most well-known parts of the Bible. 
the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. If only they called the final parable the lost son, then we would have a perfect three-sermon miniseries. To be honest, I don't know what prodigal means. Maybe it's synonymous with lost. But probably not, otherwise why didn't they use the word lost? I'm pretty sure that the word itself, prodigal, doesn't appear in the parable. And prodigal is one of those peculiar words. It's taken on this bizarre position in the English language. We just don't use it. Unless, of course, it's used as some kind of idiom when making reference to this parable. So you can, you can watch a film and hear someone say, Ah, so the prodigal has returned. And yet, as has been made popular by Tim Keller, though I can't believe he was the first person to notice it, the prodigal son only has a supporting role in this parable. The star, our leading role, goes to the elder son. He is the one who should feature in the title of this parable. But I certainly haven't come up with a fancy word for an alternative title. Partly because... Our current title is so ingrained in our thinking, it would be impossible to replace it. Oh, and just for completeness, it turns up, because I looked it up, prodigal has nothing to do with being lost. Rather, it refers to the younger son's lavish and reckless lifestyle that he enjoyed at the expense of his father. So, the key to understanding the parable, this parable and the two previous ones, is found in verses 1 to 3. So, let's have a look. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, he told them this parable. Why did Jesus tell the parable? Because the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling. Why were the Pharisees and scribes grumbling? Because Jesus was happy to both receive and eat with sinners. Getting our heads around this is going to be crucial to understanding what follows. When it comes to the lost sheep, often the onus of the story is placed upon the sheep that's lost. You are that lost sheep. But Jesus is like the shepherd. And he's going to come and he's going to find you. And once he's found you, he's going to lift you up on his shoulders and carry you home. And there'll be a party because you're the lost sheep, but now you've been found. Now, it isn't that this is wrong. It's just that the emphasis is slightly skewed. The purpose of the parable wasn't told to the lost sheep of Israel 
as an encouragement that Jesus was going to seek them. Rather, the parable was told to those who grumbled because Jesus received sinners and ate with them. The question then becomes, what do these three parables have to say to the grumblers? In order to understand this, the three parables need to be read together. If we read the first parable in isolation, then we miss the context of verse 2. The intended audience is the grumbling Pharisees. And if we overlook the first two parables, well, actually, they've laid some important groundwork to help understand the final one. So let's begin with the lost sheep. In verse 5, we read, And he was found, and, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Having found the sheep, the shepherd is rejoicing. And when he gets home, home he asks his friends to come and rejoice with me. Rejoice as I am rejoicing, because I have found the missing sheep. And then in verse 7, a comment is made of the purpose of the parable. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So when one sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. But what if this category of 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Well, if this was the first time we'd come across this, it would be a bit of a puzzle. But it isn't. This is a category that's already been introduced And it's a category that Jesus is particularly critical of. So back in Luke 5, verse 32, we read, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. And then in Luke 7, verses 29 to 30, we read, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too They declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. By this point in Luke, the idea of a righteous person who needs no repentance has become something of a derogatory term that Jesus makes use of to refer to those who reject Jesus and refuse to repent. They are those who've been invited to the banquet, but have made their excuses and do not come. And so verse 7 is an initial criticism of the Pharisees, who grumble when heaven 
responds to the same with joy. There's a subtle dig at the Pharisees. You grumble under the same circumstances that heaven rejoices. And the parable of the lost coin further builds this theme of joy in heaven. In this case, in verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now it's specifically attributed to the angels of God who are joyful over the one sinner who repents. Once again, the grumbling of the Pharisees is juxtaposed with the joy of the angels. The Pharisees are at odds with the emotions of heaven. Which brings us nicely to the so-called prodigal son. You'll notice this parable is extremely long compared to the first two. And having spent all his father's money, the younger brother returns back, hoping to gain his father's favour, and wants to be taken back as a hired hand. But the father doesn't respond this way. He receives him as his son. And the servants are called to prepare a lavish banquet. And the father celebrates. And the father wishes that everyone else might celebrate with him. Up to this point, the account has merely provided the context for the elder son's response. Upon hearing that his brother is back and his father is celebrating, the elder brother is angry. We read of his anger in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. In the same verses we hear of his anger, we see how the father comes to the elder son to entreat him to share his joy. To which the elder son responds in verse 29. Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, Yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice a few things. Firstly, the son's happy to celebrate. He just doesn't want to celebrate for the same reason his father wishes to celebrate. He'll happily take his father's young goat and celebrate with his friends, but he will not celebrate with his father and for the reason that's given by his father. That which causes his father to celebrate, causes him to become angry. Also, he says he never disobeyed his father's command. 
But he says those words literally after hearing his father's command that he come and share the joy his father feels over the return of his other son. The very thing he refuses to do. This final parable makes the implicit explicit. The first two have laid the foundation that when the sinner repents, there's joy in heaven. Then it's the final parable that exposes the Pharisee's attitude as that of the elder son. The Pharisee's attitude is at odds with the attitude of God. He has sent Jesus to call sinners to repentance. And so when sinners repent, there's joy in heaven. But the Pharisees grumble when sinners repent. Not only that, they themselves refuse to repent. We can go further because we've seen that they put obstacles in the way of people who otherwise would be willing to repent. The Pharisees oppose the purpose of God. Now the part of this morning's passage that we've overlooked is back in verse 14. It comes before the grumbling of the Pharisees. And it's this that leads to the three parables that follow. This is where Jesus is warning the crowd of the cost of following him. Remember last week we read back in 12, 49 to 53... that Jesus has told the crowd he hasn't come to bring peace. He's come to bring division. And this explains why he says in 14 verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. For a son to follow Jesus would mean rejection from his Jewish heritage and Jewish family. So if the son isn't ready to leave behind their father and mother, then he cannot follow Jesus. This section also has two parables, but each of the two parables have slightly different points. The first is the builder, who is careful to count the cost of beginning the project, because it would be embarrassing only to get halfway through and then have to give up. Here we have the disciple who fails to count the cost. He's keen to become a Christian, but has no understanding at how difficult the life is. In the end, he cannot persevere. He gives up before the end arrives. Then there's a the parable of the king who's about to go to war, so he counts the cost but really, as in he can't win, 
and not wanting the opposing king as his enemy, he asks for terms of peace. Here we have counting the cost, but we have it from a different perspective. This now is the cost of not following Jesus. If you don't follow him, Jesus becomes your enemy. The cost of which is great. Jesus is God's representative and not someone you'd want to oppose. And so in this case, the disciples want to know how it is possible to be reconciled to God. Because the cost of not following Jesus is great. But he's made peace That is, Jesus has made peace so that we can be reconciled with the Father. So the Pharisees should be really thinking about counting the cost. Because to continue to grumble is to be opposed to Jesus. And to be opposed to Jesus does come at a great cost. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these warnings that we can read here about the cost of following your Son and the cost of not following him. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who count the cost We thank you, Lord, that we can read these parables and see the warnings of how our emotions should reflect the emotions of heaven. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who are among those who repent and persevere to the end. We ask that we would be those who share the joy of heaven when we see one sinner repent. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. Any questions, thoughts, or comments? I'll give you a minute to have a think. Yes, well, we're actually going to comment on this in the reflection, oh, okay. but no, that's you cool. Wait if you'd uh, no, no, I mean, you know, the more times the better, isn't it? So here, yeah, I think, interestingly, I think um, it is all tied up, and I know we've got this, the cost of the discipleship, and then we've got almost as a separate section, we've got this new title, "Salt Without Taste is Worthless." So I think here is this idea that. Almost it's a parallel to the um, Jesus and the vine. So you know when in John he he says, abide in me 
And if you abide, abide with me, you will bear fruit. And then those branches that don't bear fruit will be cut off. And in a similar way, the saltiness is referring to um, the fruitfulness that the Christian who follows Jesus and is, and is committed to him will produce. But someone who doesn't follow Jesus or veers off from following Jesus, that's when they lose their saltiness. And here the example is something that has lost its saltiness, you know, salt that doesn't have saltiness is useless. And so it's thrown away. So again, I think there's that sense of encouragement of follow Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly because there is no other way and you will be salty. Uh, but turn away from Jesus or don't accept Jesus and you'll lose your saltiness. Does that work? Yes, Susie. Yeah, good question. So verse 7, how are we to think of the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? It kind of feels like it's a bit of a nonsense because surely that's something they do need. They do need to repent. Yeah, and I do think... Um, I guess it's interesting because we don't want to say it's a false category because that feels a little bit problematic. You know, why is Jesus introducing this false category of people who don't need no repentance when everyone does need repentance? So I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and it's, it's similar to what we read back in 5, verse 31. So Luke 5, verse 31 and 32 and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you've got a similar problem there where you think, well, who are these righteous who don't need to be called by Jesus? Um, particularly when you've got this parallel with those people who are well and therefore don't need a doctor. But then, I think it's one of those 
it's a category that I think you've just kind of got to run with in the book of Luke, and it starts to unravel as this group of people who Jesus hasn't come to call become to, they kind of begin to morph into these Pharisees who refuse to accept Jesus, become hostile when he does the work of the Lord on the Sabbath. They stand opposed to him and they've refused. I mean, the other thing as well, the other quote we mentioned was 7 verse 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Which takes us all the way back to John. And in John, sorry, as in John the Baptist, in Luke 3 verse 7, he said, he he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So I think when you start to put all these pieces together, that's where this righteous person who needs no repentance starts to become quite a derogatory term, referring to the Pharisees, who first of all um, rejected John's baptism, rejected the Messiah. They then obstruct sinners who want to come and see Jesus. And you see that various times at the different feasts, like the woman who... um, the woman who washes Jesus' feet um, and stands opposed to Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And we talked there, didn't we, about how Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and doing God's work on the Sabbath. What better way to do that? So that means then by the time we get to the chapter 15... And verse 7, uh, where it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I think by then, it's this, I think exactly, who is this? Who are these 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? In one sense, it kind of can't be the Pharisees because that's the one thing they do need. Um, But they don't think they need it. When Jesus stands in front of them, they oppose him, they reject him, they grumble when he receives those who do willingly accept the repentance. Um, it becomes, it, it's a category you, you, know, you truly don't want to be in. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's funny, sometimes these things, 
it's, it's easier to feel them than explain them, if you see what I mean. It's kind of a, you can kind of see how the two coalesce, but it's very hard to kind of explain how they coalesce, if you see what I mean. Time for one more. Go on, Nikki. <laughs> Yeah, no, that makes sense, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess... Well, obviously, 15 verse 1 to 3 sets the scene. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So I guess that on the surface... That's what's being presented. Um, but then how Jesus then counters that is this idea that when sinners repent, there's joy in heaven. But when sinners repent, you're not happy. Um, but I guess, I mean, I guess one of the things that I think I've drawn out is that grumbling is maybe an initial, it, that's what you see, but also there's a lot more going on in the background in that they, they do oppose Jesus, they oppose him healing on the Sabbath, they stand bef in front of him and in between people who would willingly repent and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I guess it's like anything, you can't have one without the other. So I think the grumblings may be the superficial thing that's being engaged with here, but I think, obviously, that comes from a deeper-seated opposition to Jesus. Does that help? Okay, we've had three. Let's leave it there. Obviously, we can keep thinking about these things uh, and discussing amongst yourselves. We're going to stand to sing The Lord's My Shepherd. Bet you didn't see that one coming.